Well, um, I probably wouldn't need to do work very hard to kind of persuade you that our city is in a bit of a crisis at the moment. Um, and that was really the subject of Luke's prayers in lots of ways. What do we do when we're in a crisis? I read an article um, just recently, and the headline of the article was, Can London Survive? Can London Survive? And one of the things that we've seen is that the lockdown has kind of <clears throat> completely just hollowed out the city. You know, normally London is just a completely a thriving economic and cultural hub, and it's like a magnet. People want to move here um, because there's so much going on, and all this is where all the people live, and there's so much uh, opportunity and career prospects and so on, along with all the culture and stuff that goes with that, the arts and the music and the theatre. And uh, so everybody sort of hopes that London streets uh, are paved with gold, as Dick Whittington thought. And, um, but 2020 has changed all of that, hasn't it? And um, the lockdown has completely, uh, completely changed all of the opportunities and all of the prospects in lots of ways. Um, many people aren't going to the office anytime soon. They're certainly not going to the theatre anytime soon. And so actually, uh, a lot of people are leaving. And right at the start of lockdown, a quarter of a million people left uh, London. The equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge populations put together disappeared. And that's because all of the reasons um, which make London a great place to live, people are starting to wonder whether they're really true at the moment. And uh, so anybody who's kind of uh, under the illusion that London was this great sort of utopia where everybody's going to dwell together in peace and prosperity and harmony and so on is kind of currently having a little bit of a wake-up call. And many people are asking, do I really belong here? Do I really want to live here? Where do I belong? Well, for those of us who are Christians this morning, uh, Christians are people who actually know that London isn't our true home. Christians never thought that London was the great utopian city. Christians have got a great big hope, much bigger than this city. Actually, we look forward to the city where peace and uh, justice will one day reign and where all of the wrongs of the world will one day be put right and when we will dwell with the Lord forever. And that's our hope. Not that one day London will get back to normal, but one day we will be in the great heavenly city. And in the meantime, we as Christians here in London are what the New Testament describes as exiles. And so Peter, when he's writing to the churches, describes the churches, the Christians there, as exiles. And if you're an exile, well, you live here, but really, uh, you belong to another place. Well, we're spending these uh, seven weeks studying together the book of Nehemiah. And if you've got it there in front of you, uh, Nehemiah was an exile. An exile. Uh, he, it says, lived, in verse one, in the citadel of Susa, and citadel of Susa was the, it was the most important city in the ancient world. It was the London equivalent. It was the capital of the Persian Empire, kind of in the Persian Gulf there and uh, in what is now Iran. And the reason that Nehemiah lived there, despite the fact that he was an Israelite, was the Israelites were in exile. And so just if, we, if, we, if Nehemiah is kind of uncharted territory to us, as I suspect it might be to some of us, uh, a little history recap of what's going on. Because in, in order to understand uh, Nehemiah, we need to know where it comes in the history of the Bible. And so I've got this little um, uh, a picture slide which I found uh, on Google Images. Here it is hopefully coming up behind me. And uh, which you really require 2020 vision. It was a lot clearer. I apologize on my laptop than it is this morning, unfortunately, on the screen. Um, but what this is, is all the 66 books of the Bible and uh, the top two shelves of the Old Testament books and, the, and, the, and they're in order. And the bottom one's the New Testament. And 
to understand Nehemiah, we need to realize that although it's only sort of halfway through the Old Testament, it's actually uh, it's right at the end of those uh, purple books in the top at the middle. Because the Old Testament is grouped together not by, uh, it's not in chronological order, uh, it's actually together by category of book. So the first five books of the Bible, those are the books of Moses. Then the history books, the purple ones, are all together, beginning with Joshua and going all the way through to the end of the Old Testament history. Then there's the poetry and the wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs and so on. And then the green and the blue ones in the middle, that's all of the prophets. And so um, what the Old Testament looks like is it's got all of the history, what happened from Joshua to Esther, and then the prophets are what God's people were saying about what was happening. So there's Nehemiah. It's right at the end. It's virtually the last thing that happened uh, before the Old Testament finished. If the Old Testament goes all the way from the beginning of the beginning, all the way up to just before Jesus came, well, Nehemiah is virtually right at the end of the Old Testament. And we need to understand that, therefore, what's happened so far, really, in the history of the Old Testament. And what's happened so far, it's all about the kingdom of God. And really, the whole Bible's about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is kind of three things, uh, which were promised originally to Abraham, who is the father of the faith. And right back in the beginning, in, in Genesis, in chapter 12, uh, the Lord promised him three things with the original covenant. Number one, that the kingdom of God was a people. And he said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Uh, not only a people, but you're going to dwell in the place which I'm going to give to you, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And, but it's not just going to be people in a place. It's people in the place living under God's rule and his blessing. And uh, God promised Abraham that all the nation, you will be blessed and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the whole of the history of the Old Testament is really the unfolding of God's plans in making that kingdom come to pass. And the rest of the history of Genesis is how, against all the odds, kind of miraculous story of Abraham did, in fact, become the father of a great nation and a whole numerous people. But they were in the wrong place by the end of uh, you know, the start of Exodus. They are in uh, slavery in Egypt. And so from Exodus through to sort of uh, Joshua, is the miraculous story against all the odds of God bringing the people through uh, into the promised land. But there wasn't much rule or blessing at that time. Actually, if you read the book of Judges, it's complete chaos and um, everyone doing whatever they want. Until so then, And then the next thing that happens is God brings them to the place where there is the people established, living under the rule of God and experiencing his blessing. And the high point where all of those three come together is King David. And the city of Jerusalem is established and the kingdom of God, the covenant promises, have been fulfilled. But it didn't last very long. And actually, the rest of the unfolding history of the Old Testament, all the way through the rest of those history books, is pretty much the, the story of um, God's people really just being unfaithful to their covenant promises. And Nehemiah knows, if you look down at verse 8, he knows that when um, the covenant was renewed with Moses there, remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That's what God promised. And after several hundred years of unfaithfulness, eventually, you know what God said, enough's enough. And he allowed uh, Israel to be overcome by, in 722, the Assyrians uh, captured the sort of the northern kingdoms of Israel and they were carted off into slavery uh, and captivity. And in 587 BC, 
Jerusalem itself, Judah, the southern kingdoms, Babylon, uh, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. That's how it finishes at the end of two chronicles, uh, the fall of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar turns up and he besieges Jerusalem and he destroys the walls and he tears down the city and, and, just, and he tears down the temple and he carts off all of the survivors into captivity in Babylon. And that's where Nehemiah is. And they know, though, that even though the people are in exile, uh, the promise of God to build the kingdom, despite the unfaithfulness of the people, it can never fail. Because, uh, verse 9, but, uh, Nehemiah prays, if you return to me and obey my commands, the Lord had promised, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, all the way in the citadel of Susa in the Persian Empire, way far away from where they're supposed to be. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And that's what happened. So after two chronicles, you've got Ezra, and that's the story. The exiles began to return. And the beginning of the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel, uh, who was a squash player. Zerubbabel. No, don't worry about it. He wasn't really a squash player. Uh, Zerubbabel brought back 50,000 people and they began and they rebuilt the, they rebuilt the temple. And then uh, halfway through Ezra, Ezra um, comes back with a whole load more people and they get the Bible right again at the heart of they resubmit themselves to the book of the law. And, and then we get Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the one who was concerned about the rebuilding of the actual fabric of the city the walls, the gates. He was concerned about the civic life of the place. So that's why uh, uh, Hanani, verse 2, his brother, came from Judah, from Jerusalem, with other men. And uh, Nehemiah said he wanted to question them about the Jewish remnant, though that faithful core who, who'd always stuck with uh, the Lord. Just, they hadn't gone after idols. They hadn't uh, um, got themselves in a mess. They were the remnant. They'd survived the exile. And about Jerusalem, Nehemiah wants to know. But, verse 3, they say that the report is not good. Those who survived the exile are back in the province. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And so Nehemiah is the one who God raised up to do the rebuilding of the city. He was the rebuilder, and that's what happened. And so... uh, there we go. The, the kingdom of God was established. He was the one who was able to, uh, uh, to verse 5, he asked the king, he says, uh, let me go back to that city so that I can rebuild it. So why are we studying this book? Why, uh, what, what can we say about Nehemiah? Why are we going to spend these seven weeks having a look at this book together? Well, let me give three, three quick reasons. Firstly, the theme of rebuilding. As I just said, that's what Nehemiah is all about, rebuilding. And we just feel that actually, you know, at this cultural moment where our city, you know, we've said it's a mess uh, in lots of ways, and we feel that Nehemiah has, has got something to say to us in 2020 when there's so much rebuilding that it needs doing. And actually, a lot of the churches, I think, are, are kind of feeling this because, you know, after we sort of prayed about this and felt that we ought to study the book of Nehemiah, it turned out one or two other churches in London are also looking at Nehemiah this autumn as well. So maybe God is doing something and wanting to say something to his church through this book. Uh, you know, in, in our church as well. Um, you know, not that uh, St. Mark's is uh, in great trouble and disgrace, verse 3, you know, uh, St. Mark's isn't torn down and in need of rebuilding. But at the same time, actually, you know, there is the churches, we can't sing, uh, we aren't able to do most of the stuff that we normally can do. When we come out of the other side of this, there'll need to be some rebuilding that's going to happen. Firstly, the theme. Secondly, because it's just such a great book. 
I mean, if you've read Nehemiah, it is gripping stuff. I mean, look at verse one. This is the only book of the Bible, I think, which is basically a, 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 a sort of a first-person narrative uh, of, a, of a diary, the words of Nehemiah. Well, who is this Nehemiah who wants to know about the, reg, the remnant and who gets the bad report? And, you know, verse four, he heard the, I heard these things. I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed. And here's his prayer. And we're wondering, well, who is this guy, Nehemiah, who so cares about the people and wants to rebuild the city? And look at the way it finishes the end of the chapter, just the one line. I was cupbearer to the king. End of chapter one. Join us next. Week. Who's, what, what's the cup? Who's the king that he's the cupbearer to? We didn't know that. We have to read on. Chapter two, Artaxerxes is the king. And, uh, and of course, he's the most powerful person in the whole world at that point. And even though everything looks like a mess and in disgrace, well, God has raised up one person to be the cupbearer to the king. Because, of course, the king, you know, he's so powerful that everyone wants to poison him all the time. And so he has to have a special person to taste his wine every time he sits down for dinner and make sure he's not going to get poisoned. And that's Nehemiah. What a job. Can you imagine? And, uh, but with that comes a kind of position of, of you know, of he's got the king's ear. He's trusted. He's able to come to him with his request and he's able to waltz into his presence and sort of say, um, uh, uh, you know, please send me back. Um, so it's an absolutely riveting read. I recommend um, uh, that you, uh, you know, go away some point this week and just have a read through the book of Nehemiah. But a third reason for wanting to study it over these weeks is we never actually studied it before. In the whole history of St. Mark's, when, um, when, when Paul Perkin retired, he gave me the special blue ring binder of all the sermons series that have ever been at this church. And uh, it's an amazing thing. It goes all the way back to 1987. And would you believe, guess what the first ever sermon series was at St. Mark's? Ezra. And in the autumn of 1987, there was a, a whole autumn-long series looking at the book of Ezra, and the title of the series was Building the Church. And ever since then, uh, St. Mark's in this church has been preached virtually every single book of the Bible. I went through, and you can tick them all off, with one or two notable exceptions, including Nehemiah. We've never looked at it. And so it just feels like, actually, at the end of, you know, right at the beginning of St. Mark's uh, life, when the church was planted, Ezra, the rebuilding of it, the exiles coming back, and here we are, you know, we're in this in-between sort of season, a new vicar's coming, and we thought, well, let's have a look at this together. So I hope that's kind of whet your appetite uh, for the coming weeks. What can we say just before we uh, sort of wrap up about chapter one? Um, what, can we, what can we take away from this chapter one and two that we've just heard read after a very extended introduction? Um, Chapter 1 of Nehemiah gives us a flavor for the whole book, and really what it, te- what it does is it teases up, it gives us an insight into what kind of person, who we're going to need if we are going to rebuild. And really what it's saying is we're going to need people like Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the one who went, verse 5, to the king and said, let me rebuild the city. Well, if we're going to rebuild the city, we need to be like, if we're here this morning and we're feeling inspired by, you know, all right, I'm going to get on St. Mark's serving opportunities. I'm going to sign up for the youth team. I'm going to get on the, you know, help out with the food bank. If we're going to rebuild, what sort of people do we need? And Nehemiah, four standout qualities, four characteristics of Nehemiah. Nehemiah loved the people. Nehemiah trusted God, Nehemiah knew where he was going, and Nehemiah was willing to give his life. So those four things. Firstly, if we're going to rebuild the city, Nehemiah loved the people. Verse 2, he wanted to know about the Jewish remnant. He wanted to know how are the people doing. And they come back and say, no, they're in trouble and disgrace. And verse 4, when I heard these things, when I heard how the people were, what was his reaction? 
I sat down and wept. And for days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven because Nehemiah loved the people. And if we're going to rebuild, we need to have that same love for the people because the people today are the same as verse 3. They're in great trouble and distress. The people today are in economic trouble and distress. We know redundancy is going up. Businesses are going down. Uh, we're in relational trouble. Uh, family breakdowns happening all over the place. One London law firm said 40% increase in divorce inquiries for this time of the year. It's tragic. And, and people's... Uh, you know, domestic violence is going up. We're in re- relational trouble. We're in economic trouble. We're in physical trouble, obviously, and distress. But most of all, uh, we are in spiritual trouble. And our city's in spiritual trouble. And people don't know Jesus. And only 8% of Londoners self identify as a practicing Christian. And fewer than that would be evangelical Christians. Who is weeping? Who is mourning? Who is fasting? Who is praying and interceding for the sinfulness and the wickedness of the people that have put us in this trouble and disgrace and mess in the first place? I mean, Nehemiah was bold and confronted it head on. Second half of verse six. I confess, this was his prayer, the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We haven't obeyed you. He cares for the people. We need to love the people. If we're going to rebuild, we need to trust God. Secondly, Nehemiah knew that despite this, God's promise wasn't going to fail. God knew what he was doing and he was worth trusting and that he has a plan and he was sticking to his plan. And that's why he goes to him with a rock solid confidence and a trust in God that he knew what he was doing. Verse five, he said, he prays, Lord, the God of heaven, which God are we talking about? The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. And he's so secure as Nehemiah, he goes to cast himself straight back on the covenant promises of God. Verse eight, remember the instruction you gave your servant, Moses, and he reminds God of the covenant. And so as we look out at our world, do we believe that God knows what he's doing? Do we believe that God has a plan to rebuild and that we can trust him uh, to build his kingdom in Clapham Junction, SW11, despite the mess and the chaos we see around us? Nehemiah loved the people, he trusted God, he knew where he was going. He had a plan, he had a vision. And do you know, I think the scariest thing at the moment in our world is the fact that our leaders, our secular leaders, don't seem to have a plan. And I don't want to get sort of too political, but I don't mind whether you voted for Boris or whether you didn't vote for him. But everybody, regardless across the political spectrum, is asking, does he know what he's doing? What, where's the plan? Where's the vision? There doesn't seem to be any kind of actual organized attempt to make a strategy. It's all over the place. But look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows exactly what he's doing. Verse 7, he's sort of asking the king now. He's making his request. If it pleases the king, I want a letter to the governor of Trans-Euphrates. They've got to provide me safe conduct. Verse 8, I need a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park. He needs to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the city by the temple and for the walls, which are going to need to be rebuilt. He knows exactly where he needs to go. He knows exactly who he needs to speak to. And he knows exactly what materials he's going to need. He's got a plan. He's got a clear vision. And if we are going to go out into the next chapter of the life of St. Mark's ministry, who knows what the plan is? Have you got a vision? We need to love people, trust God, we need to have a plan, and fourthly, we need to be willing to give our life. Because when Nehemiah woke up that morning in chapter 2, and he, he, was, he knew today's the day where I'm going to let the king, the king of kings, the, 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 the Persian 
leader of the world. I'm going to let him see my emotions. He's going to ask me how I'm doing, and I'm going to tell him my plan. And he was terrified because, well, look, verse 2, I'd not been sad in his presence before. Why are you sad? I was very much afraid, verse 2. Of course he was, because if it goes wrong, he's, he's going to be for it. But I said to the king, may, look, may the king live forever. Why shouldn't I be sad when it's, my city's in such a mess? And the king said to me, well, what do you want? And look at this. I love the drama. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. He shot up that arrow prayer. We don't know what the prayer was. Maybe it was, one, maybe it was just help. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Well, please, look, would you send me to the city we want to rebuild? And he knew that he was going to potentially cost him his life to do that. And so as we, we go out into the city uh, to rebuild, you know, we're, it won't happen with people who are kind of half-hearted. You may have heard of Shackleton's famous advert that he put in the paper when he was trying to go to the Antarctic. And, he, and the advert apparently read, men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in event of success. And that's what's happening here. We need people who do those four things. We need people like Nehemiah. Well, I wonder how that lands with you if you're thinking of joining the youth team. Are you those four things? Uh, I'm not. I'm sure you're probably not either. I reckon maybe on a good day, two out of four, something like that, on the downhill with a following wind. Um, but certainly not four out of four. And do you know what? Here's a spoiler alert. As we go through Nehemiah, we'll see. If you read all the way to the end, Nehemiah wasn't those four things either. Even he wasn't enough. They did all of this work, all the way, and we're going to see. They rebuilt in Nehemiah, and you get to the end of it. Is it all happily ever after? No. Even the end, it finishes with a disappointment. It all goes wrong again. They need somebody who's the true Nehemiah. They need somebody who is all of those four things. And the Old Testament, it doesn't finish at the end of the Old Testament. There's the New Testament to come. And a few hundred years after Nehemiah, there was one who was the true Nehemiah. And he loved the people. And he wept when he saw their shame and their disgrace. And he trusted the Father. And he threw himself on the covenant promises of God. And he prayed an arrow prayer, another arrow prayer in the garden. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And he had a plan. He had a vision. And he was willing to give his life for that vision. And John, the Apostle John, had a a vision of that, a revelation of that city. And this is where we're going, that the Lord Jesus, if we'll trust in him, he will rebuild the city. And we can be like the people of Israel who followed in his wake. Let's stand and let me read of the vision of the city where we're actually going. The angel carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall in order to provide protection and in order for civil life to be able to flourish with inside the 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the angel who talked with me had a great measuring rod to measure the city, the gates, the walls, and it was like a square as long as it was wide. And the wall was made of jasper. It wasn't made of timber from the royal parks of Asaph. It was made of jasper and the city was pure gold as pure as glass and the foundations of the city wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone and the great street of the city was of gold and the streets of London are not paved with gold but the great street of this city is paved with gold as pure as transparent glass and I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple 
And the nations will walk by his light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on no day will its gates ever be shut, because there will be no night there, but the glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. Nothing impure will ever enter, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life this morning? And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Blessed are those who wash their robes and they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty this morning come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life and he who testifies to these things says yes I'm coming soon Amen